Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Carity Calver, who took over from Dr. Ashley Hay as editor of Griffith Review in June 2022. With the exception of a couple of pieces, Carity curated this book called A Matter of Taste, which is all about food, a topic close to her heart as she completed a PhD on cookbooks, which I'm going to ask her about. As always, we're just going to look at a sample of the writing in the different categories, essay, memoir, in conversation and reportage, with a shout out to the poetry, the picture gallery and the fiction. Carity, welcome to the Griffith Review Books, Books, Books series. It's great to talk to you. Thank you, Nicole. Thanks so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Now, I am fascinated by the fact that you did a PhD in cookbooks, so that's my first question. Can you tell us a little bit about that, what, what your PhD was about? Very happily. So I spent four glorious years buying way too many cookbooks. Um, I've always been fascinated by cookbooks, I suppose. When I was growing up, my mum my mom is a wonderful cook and she has a vast collection of cookbooks. I don't think I've ever met anyone who's got more cookbooks than um, my mum. And I remember as a kid always just seeing her just sitting down to flip through a book and just read a cookbook as as she would do that as much as she would actually use the books as instructional manuals, I guess. And so that was always something that interested me. And then I worked many years ago, I worked as a bookseller and I began to notice the shift, I suppose, whereas my mum had, you know, a huge collection of the Women's Weekly paperbacks and you know your Margaret Fulton cookbook, your sort of classic, your staples of the um, of the kitchen. Uh, I began to see that cookbooks were beginning to sort of occupy this new space of being almost like coffee table books, beautiful, lush books that you perhaps wouldn't want to splatter with tomato sauce if you were using them. And I also am very uh, guilty of reading cookbooks way, way more than I actually use them. And so that was sort of what I was looking at in my PhD. I wrote about, I think, about 26 cookbooks altogether. Some of them were Australian, some of them were British, and I was examining them through the lens of narrative theory. So essentially, why are we so obsessed with cookbooks when very often we don't actually use them for the the purpose that they are supposedly intended, and what what are those elements of narrative that are so appealing to us in certain cookbooks? Um, And I looked at sequence description and voice and how writers like, for example, I looked at Charmaine Solomon, uh, Nigella Lawson, uh, Hugh Fenling Whittingstall, uh, Margaret Fulton, and just the various different ways, oh, and Elizabeth David, mustn't forget her, and just the various ways in which they draw their readers in and either have books that feature a lot of wonderful travel writing like Elizabeth David uh, or information like the Charmaine Solomon cookbook, uh, you know, when it came out in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, uh, would have been just something quite quite amazing to your sort of average 
um, Australian home cook. The first essay I want to ask you about is Kate Gibbs. So we're going to come to that. But I just wanted to check, was it your own passion for food and cookbooks that led you to choose this topic, a matter of taste, as your, your for your first edition of Griffith Review? And what did you particularly want to explore in this edition? Sure. I think food is such a rich subject and what I like about it is that it can be both light and dark. So, of course, many of us think about food as something that's comforting, it's nostalgic, um, it holds perhaps many joyful memories, but it can also be something that's very uncomfortable. Food can be something that people struggle with on, on various different levels and I like that, those elements of light and dark. Many, many years ago, and actually the very first edition of Griffith Review that I ever bought was Griffith Review 27, Food Chain. And that edition approached food really through the lens of the changing climate and you know, food supply and production. And I, I thought it would be really interesting to revisit food, but through a totally different lens and to look at it more as something that has really strong social, emotional and cultural resonance. And, you know, the fourth edition of Griffith Review each year, the fourth edition is normally one that's a little bit lighter in tone. And I thought food would be a perfect theme for that edition and something that yeah, we could really sort of explore food as that cultural and social signifier, I guess. And it is. It's absolutely fascinating. I really just loved reading it so much. Thank Let's you. Let's start with picking a couple of the essays. And as I said, the first one I want to ask you about is by Kate Gibbs called Recipe for Success. So Kate, of course, comes from an extraordinary lineage. She's the granddaughter of Margaret Fulton and the daughter of Suzanne Gibbs, obviously, also a, a renowned chef, and she looks at cookbooks and whether or not there's a future for them in the digital age, which is something you must have been particularly interested in. What What's the answer that Kate comes to? What, what does she have to say on this subject? I really love where she lands in this essay. So she makes the point that, of course, if you're talking today about individual cookbook sales, they're going to be much lower than you know, someone like Julia Child or Irma S. Rombauer. So Irma S. Rombauer, who wrote The Joy of Cooking uh, in the 1930s in the US, in Kate's essay, she points out that Irma would have been selling pretty much 4,000 copies of that cookbook every month, which is amazing by today's amazing. standards, of course. But she says, you know, if you think about those women, those real pioneers, your Margaret Fultons, your Julia Childs, they were really groundbreaking at the time and there wasn't a lot of competition. And this was a, a quite a, a relatively new thing, the, the cookbook is the sort of object of consumption. So, of course, things are different now. But if you look today at total cookbook sales, they're still very high overall. So I think in, in 2017, in the US alone, I think about 17.8 million cookbooks uh, were sold. And so she comes, of course, to the inevitable kind of circular debate about is print dead and have, you know, the ease with which we can now find any recipe online with just a very quick Google search is that, does that mean the end for the cookbook? And she says, well, no, it doesn't. Because the thing about a cookbook is that it's a, it's, it's like our obsession with kitchen gadgetry. It's a physical object and it's aspirational. So it's something that you will buy and spend time with, not necessarily because you really need to use it, for the recipes, but because it's something that makes you feel good or something that you could just enjoy flicking through and looking at the lovely pictures of food, reading the beautiful prose, depending on the sort of cookbook that it is. So there's still, she says, very much 
a place for cookbooks and and we should use them, even though many of us are guilty of not using them, but they absolutely still have very much a, occupy a, a place in our cultural consciousness. And I like the way she makes the point that you did earlier, that even if people don't actually use them, but they read them, that's still a good thing. And she tells that great story about her grandmother, Margaret Fulton, someone presenting a book to be signed and Margaret Fulton going carefully through it and saying, there's no food splotches on the pages. You obviously haven't used any of the recipes. Yeah, it's great. And it's funny, my my mum was always a a great one for never staining her cookbooks. She gets very upset. And something else she said that was really interesting, which did kind of ring true a little bit to me, also a great collector of cookbooks, is that publishers um, think if a consumer cooks two recipes from a new cookbook, they're doing well. Yeah, that's fascinating. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yet still they keep on coming and we keep on buying them. Carolyn, let's talk now about the piece by Eve Rees, um, historian, called The Fight for the White Stuff. I found this fascinating, the milk wars. So Eve writes about plant-based milks, which they discovered when they lived in Washington in 2013. And fascinatingly, Eve being a historian, they describe how they were researching Australian women who had worked in in the US in the early 20th century. And they had come across this pioneering woman called Alice Caporn, born in Australia in 1875 but lived in the US and she became what we would call today a wellness warrior. I think Eve calls her a, a health entrepreneur. Can you tell us a little bit about Alice? Sure. So I love the way in this essay Eve introduces Alice because you it's sort of if you don't already know who she is, you could very easily be fooled into thinking that Eve is talking about someone contemporary. They describe Alice as someone who, you know, in her 60s looked incredibly mm-hmm. youthful. She made her own almond milk with a cheesecloth and sweetened it with a little bit of honey and was very much a proponent of sort of clean eating and, you know, daily exercise. But actually, Alice is someone who was born in 19th century Australia. And she was quite a character. She married an Australian and then she left Australia in, I think, 1917. She was very passionate about the science of nutrition, which was sort of an emerging field at that time. And she decided that she was going to move to the headquarters of the the Christian science movement, uh, which was in Boston in Massachusetts. And Christian science was a, a relatively new religion. A lot of quite progressive women in Australia, women like Miles Franklin and Vita Goldstein, were followers of, of Christian science. And, and Alice Caporn was as well. And she decided quite boldly to make the move to America. And at that time, American culture didn't really have the hold in Australia that it that it came to. So it was quite an unusual step for an Australian to go by herself to America, where she became very, very involved in the science of nutrition, very involved in naturopathy, and was, I suppose, a what we would think of now as a bit of a, a wellness warrior and someone who really promoted alternative milks. And she had a sort of a health regime, her own special health system called health and beauty exercises. She lectured all across the East Coast. She published many books. And finally, she returned to Australia in 1937. And this is where things start to sort of heat up. So she launched her own lifestyle magazine in 1939. And she made a few sort of wild claims that I think for readers today, you could certainly draw quite clear parallels between Alice Caporn and some of today's more sort of outspoken um, 
wellness influences, I suppose. So, you know, one of the things that she said was that her dietary regime could eliminate infantile paralysis. Um, and at that time in Australia, the sort of staples of your average white Australian's diet were, you know, meat, sugar, dairy, tea. And here was Alice strongly advocating for sort of a move away from dairy, that it was very bad for you and that you should, you know, only drink alternative milks. She wrote an article which was very critical of cow's milk. Yes. And she praised almond milk. Tell us about how that went down in 1930s Western Australia. Very, very badly. Um, so the milk lobby and various farmers and, and other people really turned against her. And she had quite a tough time of it for a few years, but she didn't back down. I think in the end it sort of worked out all right for her. So there were, you know, a few years of kind of back and forth and people, you know, saying that she was an absolute quack and was peddling complete nonsense. And of course, dairy was, you know, the basis for a, a healthy Australia. And one of the really interesting things that he touches on in the essay is how it's sort of at the heart of, of the milk wars really were all of these ideas about culture and quite racist ideas that were kind of predicated on really eugenics, which obviously had quite a hold at the time. Mm. And this idea that a healthy white Australia had to sort of consume dairy because it meant the the continuation of of the white race mm. and otherwise you know the white races would be usurped and so it's this interesting kind of the the layers beneath what on the face of it seemed to be just a kind of oh dairy's good for you versus no dairy's not good for you there are all of these other interesting ideas at play but Alice didn't back down and in the end she sort of found success as a, an anti-dairy person who was still invited to give talks and... Eve said it that despite these determined attempts to completely trash her reputation, in fact, she got more and more, I love that, she got more and more invitations to speak. Let's, let's move to that now. So Eve talks about, Eve says that the milk wars are back. Um, and That's there's right. Of interesting facts as well as stories in this article, but this one caught my eye that according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, Australian consumption of plant-based milk has gone up 43% in the yeah. last three years. So that has generated what Eve describes as the milk wars again. So can you tell us a little bit about what Eve writes about the fight over the last few years, the same fight by milk producers, at, in this case, to prevent plant-based fluids being called milk? Sure. And, and plant-based fluids, it's such a... I know. It's an ugly term. It is. And there is one one person, I think a, 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 someone from the dairy industry uh, is mentioned in, in the essay as wanting almond milk to be rebranded as almond juice uh, because it is not milk. And so this is the sort of the root of the, the milk wars. That, so the New South Wales lobby group Dairy Connect in 2017 complained that the word milk is is being misused and that if you have, you know, almond and soy products, they shouldn't be called milk. And it, it again sort of goes back to these two different stories, as Eve says, about milk and population. And there is this idea as sort of wellness culture has really taken hold, this idea that it's something that women in particular are going to be very susceptible to and that this move towards sort of health fad um Kind of pushing people in the direction of alternative milks, you know, those people are, are likely to be women and they'll be easily swayed and it's mm -hmm. foolish of them. But at the same time, 
while alternative milks are very much heralded as, oh, you know, they're healthier for you, they're dairy-free, they're full of goodness. Of course, they're also full of all sorts of other mysterious ingredients that you perhaps wouldn't find in dairy. So it kind of becomes this quite circular circular argument. And Eve presents both sides of those arguments, I thought. Let's move to another one of my favourites again, as someone with a very sweet tooth, Laura Elveries. But she's a writer and her piece entitled Confected Outrage. So she begins by explaining that in 2016, she attends a children's literature conference overseas where she gives a paper about lollies in kids' fiction. And at that conference, she hands out lollies that she's bought in Australia and taken over, including lollies called Chicos, C-H-I-C-O-S. Now, I have to confess, I didn't know what they were. Can you tell us what they are and what happened when she went to hand those out? Sure. So Chicos are sort of brown, little brown jubes. They're chocolate flavoured and they are shaped like babies. And Laura had, you know, she packed some Australian lollies with her on her trip and she was very excited to offer some around to the the room, the, the audience at the end of her talk. And one of the other Australians who was present called her out and said, well, you know, Chico's are, are very problematic, actually. And Laura was, you know, felt very, very embarrassed and, you know, is sort of standing there saying, oh, well, yes, I, you know, I do acknowledge they are problematic, but, you know, please, please have a lolly if you'd like one. And then the essay is her delving into this idea of what it means when, as we've seen quite a few times in recent years, the name of a food, particularly lollies, so Laura wrote her PhD thesis on lollies, lollies in children's literature, so she's quite fascinated by the sort of cultural place that that lollies occupy and what it means when a product is discovered to be racist or problematic in some other way and the huge backlash that can erupt when the renaming process begins. And she makes this really pertinent point that some of the companies responsible for making these lollies, like Nestle, for example, Nestle has been very credibly accused for many years of terrible human rights violations. And most of us know this and we might think that it's horrifying or terrible, but doesn't really stop us from not really paying much attention. But you know, God forbid that a beloved lolly that someone remembers from their childhood undergo a renaming process and then all of a sudden, you know, you have people like Pauline Hanson, for example, being absolutely up in arms. And so the point that Laura is making is that because lollies, I suppose in many ways, like food more generally, occupy such a a strong place in our in our emotions, in our imagination, and because they conjure such, you know, fond memories of childhood that people become very, very affronted and upset when they have to, when they think that they're being pushed into renaming something, it seems like an affront against the happy memories that, you know, that they associate with this particular food stuff. She gives some examples of that. She talks about Eskimos. She talks about those lollies that are called Redskins, Aunt Jemima pancakes, which I must say I remember growing up with. she says that in June, at exactly what you say, in June 2020, when Nestle announced that Chico's would be renamed Cheekies and Redskins would become Red Rippers, that Nestle received a huge backlash, including, as you say, Pauline Hanson, who posted about it on her Facebook page as a yet another example of cancel culture epidemic. 
She goes on to talk about a very real example, which I remember very well, I'm sure you do as well, here in Australia concerning coon cheese. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the background to coon cheese, how it got that name and then how that name became effectively outed as very problematic? So if I remember, I might have to refer to my notes, Mm. Um, because Laura interviewed for this essay Stephen Hagen, who was very, very involved for many, many years in the fight to to rename um, Coon Cheese, which was successful, but it took a really long time. He began lobbying, I think, in 1999. Yeah, and and there was no result till 2020, 21 years later. Yeah, 21 years, which is really shocking. I think Kraft Walker had always claimed that the cheese was named after the person, Edward Kuhn. And Stephen Hagen said, well, actually, no, that's not true. It was very deliberately given this name because it is a perjurative and racist term. That was so alarming. Kraft started, the Kraft, I think in the US, had, had given yeah. it the name after the founder back in the 1900s and then the cheese started being sold here in 1931. And then in 2015, a Canadian company bought the brand but it kept with the name and that was so alarming that I I had always assumed it was an inadvertent thing of course Mm -hmm. it needed to be changed but it was but that was quite sinister when Stephen says no it wasn't inadvertent at all that's almost was like dog whistling wasn't it absolutely and that it took so long to change it and Stephen talks about how you know in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020 that really did help move things along but of course it's terrible that it takes that to finally get a bunch of companies to get themselves in gear and as Laura points out many of these companies when they made the announcements about the renamings and rebrandings don't really acknowledge properly the heart of the problem it's all empty PR language about you know our company's all about smiles and love and laughter and rather than actually acknowledging "Mm, yes we had a really terrible racist name and this is why we're changing it it's much more sort of lots of PR puffery that doesn't actually address and of course nor does it address any of the systemic problems that are at the root of of this it is very much just a a calculated move to avoid a PR disaster. I mean I remember that backlash it's it's extraordinary to think that there would be a backlash Um, I think that um, Laura talks about one of the Sky commentators posting about it, that this will be the, the, so the cheese has now been renamed Cheer, which I love. Yes. Um, And, you know, conservative commentators went on the record saying they'd never buy the product again. Absolutely ridiculous. And, again, just this sort of dog-whistling move. Um, And, you know, just it makes me think of how the Republican Party is behaving in the US at the moment by latching onto these real kind of culture wars issues rather than addressing actual sort of systemic problems to do with inequality and and injustice, um, they'll, you know, pick this quite innocuous thing and blow it out of all proportion in order to whip the base into a frenzy. It's the same kind of thing. And and Laura does, uh, in the essay, she has some quotes from some US academics that she interviewed because, of course, in the US, there are also a number of products that have undergone this renaming process and, I'm, of course, have been subject to the same levels of uh, disproportionate backlash. So it's it's really interesting um, and it'll be interesting to see how it evolves over the coming years um, as, you know, we go through this process of considering the, the language that we use and the connotations that it might carry, um, which is a necessary process but something that many people find quite confronting. 
Let's talk now about memoir. There's a couple of pieces that I've picked. Let's look first at the one by Fiona Wright, who's an author, called Having and Not Having Cake. Now, again, I have to say, someone who loves baking, I particularly enjoyed this piece. What does she write about, Carity? This is a lovely piece that actually inspired me to start watching The Great British Bake Off, a show that I had not really bothered with. And Fiona talks about how, you know, she she spent lockdown watching baking shows, especially Bake Off. And she says, you know, I'd never really bothered with any of the competitive cooking shows that have just proliferated on our screens for many, many years now. Um, But during lockdown, she began to watch Bake Off. And she says that she's someone who also really loves baking. And she talks about the part, part of the essay sort of about the nature of Bake Off versus other competitive cooking shows. And the other part of the essay is about her own personal relationship with baking and how that has has shifted. And, of course, many people will know um, Fiona from her wonderful book, um, Small Acts of Disappearance, which came out a few years ago, which was about her struggle with an eating disorder. And so she talked about how striving to avoid paying too much kind of obsessive attention to, to food is one of the reasons she's avoided watching shows that are all about watching people pay obsessive attention to food. But the thing about Bake Off that she really loves is how it is just about the food in a very honest and lovely and simple way. You know, the backstories of the contestants don't really become a huge part of the narrative. There isn't this kind of uh, confected, to use a pun, this confected drama that comes with Mm. many competitive cooking shows. So I remember watching the first couple of seasons of MasterChef back in the day and it's very sort of overhyped dramatic but Bake Off is much more about just the joy of people coming together and making delicious and sometimes of course very elaborate creations. And she Um, says um, just so lovely she says the cake is just a cake so she talks about how much she loves baking she says which I agree with baking is not cooking there's a difference between mm -hmm. them and how during lockdown initially She loved, as a result of watching this show, she loved trying out new things. She writes about the playfulness. But in the second lockdown, the second half of last year, she stopped baking. What was that about? She stopped baking because she she says there were sort of a number of factors. So she lives with her girlfriend and she said, you know, neither of us are terribly good at eating. And there comes a point where if you are spending a lot of time making, you know, beautiful loaves of banana bread and cakes and muffins, there isn't really anyone to give them to. And of course, and this sort of so we'll talk about one of the other essays sort of touches on on this idea as well. But that there's sort of a pointlessness to cooking or baking when you don't have someone to share the spoils with, that actually it is a very social act. And if it's just you there doesn't really seem to be much point to it. Um, and, and then she talks about sort of coming to, she remembers at the very end of the essay, she talks about going into the kitchen and baking some muffins and how it's like muscle memory, remembering all of the different movements um, to, to, you know, make a batch of muffins. Um, yeah. Let's look now at Matthew Evans. So he's worn a number of different hats. He's been a farmer. He's been a chef. He's been a restaurateur, Fat Pig Farm he now runs in Tasmania, and he's also been a food critic, and that's what he talks about the most in this paper or article. It's called Finding the Fundamentals of Culture. 
And he starts by saying he has always valued doing a job that provides something tangible. And he gives the examples of being a farmer, being a chef, being a recipe writer. But then he seems to grapple a little bit with the role that he played as a restaurant critic, for which, of course, he's very well known. And he's asked by Julie Gibbs, one of the leading cookbook publishers in Australia, who's now working for Powerhouse on Culinary Archive. Julie contacts him and asks him for some of his um, artefacts from his days as a, re a restaurant critic, including his first ever review that he did um, to contribute to the Culinary Archive. How does he feel when he's approached and asked for that? He feels a bit funny about it. He sort of feels like, oh, really? Because, you know, as, as you've mentioned, he he said, you know, I chose to become a chef because I felt that that was a job that had a real purpose and a real point to it. I would make something and in making something, I would make other people happy. And the same with farm work. Um, it is a form of work, a form of labour that very clearly has an outcome. Whereas with the, the writing, he said, you know, the job of a restaurant critic really, if it disappeared tomorrow... Would anybody miss it, aside from perhaps the restaurant critic themselves who would no longer get to enjoy the spoils of that particular line of work? He feels a, a bit funny when Julie approaches him because she is in the process of constructing what will be an incredible culinary archive at the powerhouse. But it, it also really makes him start to think about the nature of his work and the nature of, well, what, what is a real job? And, you know, obviously he works on the farm now in, in Tasmania. And he said, you know, when COVID happened, it didn't really change life on the farm that much. We still worked every day, um, you know, tended to the land as you do when you're a farmer. But what was missing was that sense of hospitality and which sort of connects with Fiona's piece. You know, you have, he says it's work that has purpose, but it doesn't have meaning because all of a sudden you don't really have people to share the food with anymore and that's part of what's significant about food. And that really makes him sort of reconsider the idea of writing about food as well, which of course is another way of sharing with others what food is about and what it means to us. And he says food is culture. And, you know, if you're growing and serving and cooking food and nobody shows up, well, you know, there's sort of no no point to it. So that's part of the, the joy of food is being able to share it with others in, in a range of, of different ways, you know, be it writing a lovely essay or making a delicious batch of, of muffins. So it's a yeah, lovely piece. He seems to sort of reconcile, like by working it through in his writing, he reconciles and by the end he, he it seems that he really finds purpose. I don't know if he's still doing it, but anyway, he reflects on his work as a restaurant critic and he says that there was meaning and purpose. Yeah, which is quite lovely. Um, and it's interesting the couple of pieces in the edition that touch on the pandemic and the, the ways in which it has made us reconsider our relationship with with food and with cooking and eating. Let's talk now about Sam Van Sweden's piece, Heat and Hope and Attention. She writes about diet culture, which she has published a memoir about. Can you tell us a little bit about the diet culture that she's writing about? And um, she says a number of times through the essay that she's pretty angry about it, which is interesting. Definitely. Um, so she makes the point that diet culture is this kind of soup that all of us swim in. So many of us are very aware that it exists, this pressure to not just to look a certain way, but to consume in a certain way that you have to eat the right food. And she talks about this quite 
pernicious distinction between good and bad food and the terrible guilt that that can make us feel, but also the, the fact that diet culture is really a form of control for many of us, particularly in a time of, of chaos. So she talks specifically about the pandemic and how it's kind of thrown all of us into a strange new world that perhaps we don't really know how to grapple with and we have this constant looming sense of uncertainty that food is one one way in which we can have control over our lives when many elements of, of our lives might seem like they're very much beyond our control. But she's angry because she talks about all of the time that she has wasted over the years obsessing over things like calorie counts and there's a great line where she talks about she says something like well how many calories what, what is a small banana you know because she's so used to looking at you know guides and that so much of her mental energy has been consumed by obsessing over these things and it's a real it takes a real effort of will to try and step out I mean it's impossible really to step outside of that diet culture context but I suppose to become more aware of it and to identify what it's trying to make you do and to, to try and avoid being pushed in, in a particular direction. And she draws a parallel between diet culture and religion. And I think that's mm. kind of connecting with Eve's piece quite explicit now when you have so many wellness influencers and when social media is such a, a prevalent part of many of our lives and this very moral tone of many of the, the much of the discourse around food I suppose this this sense of moralizing and self-denial which goes back to again quite a religious if you deny then it's good and it's sort of good for your soul and good for your spirit and that we see the same sort of impulses playing out when it comes to diet culture um it's very yeah just very much a, a fabric part of the fabric of our lives and sort of impossible to remove yourself from completely but awareness I suppose is one one step to trying to avoid its its pull and I love she quotes an American dietitian who describes this diet culture or the concept of diets as the life thief and yes. and she gives this amazing statistic which is probably not all that amazing if you think about it that right now 60% of Australians are currently trying to lose weight so it is pernicious and it is it is just everywhere. Let's talk now about one of the conversations. You did a number of them, Carity. You must have enjoyed them so much. The one I want to ask you about is with Norni Barrow, and it's called A Serving of Home. Tell us about Norni, who she is, and what you two talked about. So Norni is, uh, she's been a professional chef for more than two decades, and she is also the owner of Mabu Mabu Company. And so there is a wonderful restaurant in Melbourne called uh, Big Esso, and that is Norni's restaurant. And Norni grew up in the, the Torres Strait, and she had an incredible-sounding dad who very much sort of schooled her in how to live on the land and, you know, fish and take just just what you needed to subsist from the land. And they had... When she was a teenager, she left Torres Strait and she went to up to North Queensland, I think, and ended up getting into hospitality that way. And she's very, very, very passionate about native produce. And she wants every Australian to start to experiment with native produce and to really sort of look around and see the incredible abundance that Australia has. 
and to not be I think many people can be a little bit afraid of, of native ingredients and can feel like oh well you know I don't I don't really know how to use that or I don't really know what that is. Well, uh, the one that caught my eye that I recognised immediately was warrigal greens, for example. Yes. That is something we are starting to see more of on our menus. And I thought something that was interesting, she even she tells us where we can buy it. She, you, you can buy it at most of your local green grocers. That's right. And she makes a great point that if you go to, you know, your local grocer or your local market, she says if they don't have a particular ingredient that you're looking for, a native ingredient, just ask them, what's the worst that can happen? Sure, they might say no, but they'll probably say yes or they'll make some sort of effort to get it. Um, and she has a great cookbook called Mabu Mabu, which came out, I think, earlier this year. And she, the cookbook has, has lots of great information about all various different native ingredients, how to use them, where to get them from. And she just wants everybody to have the, have a fully stocked pantry. She is just a delight. It was very difficult cutting the conversation down <laughs> to something, uh, you know, condensed for the book. But, um, yeah, she is wonderful. Let's talk now about the, I think it's the one piece of reportage in the yes. book, uh, and that's Big Blueberry by Nicole Hashem. Again, caught my eye. I love blueberries, like I suppose most people. Tell us, first of all, who is Nicole? Um, so Nicole is a, a journalist and she um, she's the Environment and Energy Editor at The Conversation and she was formerly the environment and energy correspondent and a federal politics reporter for the Sydney Morning Herald and Age. And she's also a, a Walkley Award winner. And she wrote this really great, fascinating piece of, of reportage for the edition, all about blueberries, which, again, I'm also a blueberry lover, and I just found this piece fascinating because there was so much about blueberry farming that I just didn't know. I didn't, didn't re had never really thought about it before, but a huge and, and costly industry it is, but also how, of course, climate change is potentially putting that that industry in peril and we're all obsessed with blueberries because you know once these were this was a fruit that none of us really paid that much attention to but in the late 90s scientists made this discovery that blueberries I think have more antioxidants than any other fruit and that just became a fantastic marketing point and of course I remember I grew up in the 90s and I remember that conversation starting to be blueberries starting to be promoted because of this, oh, well, you know, they're full of antioxidants. Um, but, of course, with the changes that are occurring to the climate, uh, the, the vast blueberry farming industry is potentially about to undergo some, some big changes. So Nicole talks to a number of different people in this article. Um, she talks to Ridley Bell who is the, the grandfather of Australia's blueberry industry. He's bred uh, blueberries for 47 years. Um, and she talks to um, a couple of growers who work for Ausgroup. It's a cooperative of mostly seed growers. It's one of Australia's biggest blueberry suppliers. And in talking to, um, his name is Satpal Singh Gill, he takes her around one of the, the farms and talks to her about how, and this is in around Coffs Harbour, the huge damage that was wrought just this year. She visited that farm, I think, a couple of months after the floods that devastated Lismore mm. and how the incredible sogginess of the land is really affecting um, the, the blueberry farming. And blueberries are a, a quite an intensive crop to farm. And then she also touches on the environmental impact of, of blueberry farming. And, and we have 
you know, of course we don't just see this play out with blueberries, but we have this kind of quest for perfection. You know, we expect our blueberries to, to look a certain way, to be perfect, but they are these incredibly demanding crops. And then some of the other people that she talks to, um, is she goes to Yarrawarra Aboriginal Cultural Centre and she talks to some of the traditional owners to see what they make of the, the blueberry industry. And a young woman called Lily Clegg gives Nicole a little bit of a tour and shows her some native fruits. Um, mm. One of them is a medium berry. And Nicole makes this point that, you know, which goes back to what Norni touched on in her interview, that, you know, we have an abundance of wonderful fruits that actually don't need this very sort of intensive assistance that we have to give blueberries and they're fit for our climate. So why, mm. why aren't we paying more attention to these oh, I've never heard of any of them and she describes in wonderful detail she describes how they taste you know like, like no other fruit that she's ever tasted before and here they all are just growing in Australia while we're pouring all of this um, money and resources into blueberry farming and many many younger farmers are starting to prepare for the fact that it may not be a viable line of work into the future uh, because of the the changes of the changing climate so it'll be interesting to see how that um, evolves over the next few years. And I thought the, the figures were so interesting, weren't they? The, the oh, berries yeah. are our biggest fresh produce category worth a billion dollars. Yeah. And the blueberry consumption in Australia tripled between 2016 and 2021. Like there's just these nuggets of facts that are just fascinating. It's amazing. And, of course, that superfood angle, which, again, sort of connects, goes to, to Sam Van Zweden's piece and the kind of wellness angle because, of course, blueberries, you know, you see them in all sorts of sort of foods that we would associate with with wellness, I suppose. Um, the acai bowls, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, mm. but very much, yeah, a part of that whole wellness wellness movement. I thought we'd end by talking about your, um, your conversation with Elizabeth Willing, which ties in with one of the picture gallery items, which is, of course, a piece by her. So tell us, first of all, about Elizabeth. Who is she? And and tell us a bit about her art. And, uh, Elizabeth is a really, really interesting artist. I first came across her work more than 10 years ago now. I actually wrote a catalogue essay for an exhibition that she did uh, at a, a small Brisbane gallery. And I, because at the time I was doing my, my PhD, I was really fascinated by her work because food is her source material, but it's also her subject. So all of her work... It involves food in some way, whether it be sculpture or collages that she creates from cookbooks, and she put together a series of collages um, for this edition of Griffith Review. And But her work also, the, the meaning of her work also is around our very complicated relationships with food. And I think some of what she does in her work really kind of speaks to what I said earlier in the conversation about food having these shades of, of light and, and dark. So, and she has a really interesting way of looking at food. So she has these sort of three, three lenses through which she approaches food and they are the mother, the chef and the machine. Oh, and yeah, the what's that about? That was really interesting. Really interesting. So the mother is the sort of domestic sphere of food. So, you know, obviously... The, the figure of the mother, the sort of domestic provider who cooks for the family. Then you have the, and I guess that the mother has the sort of emotional re resonance. Then you have the chef, 
where there isn't necessarily that emotional connection. It's more a sort of transactional. The chef will create food to be consumed by someone that they don't even know. And then the machine, which she said she sort of finds the most the most important but also perhaps the most horrifying because that goes to the sort of industrial the, the processing of food and the ways in which I suppose food becomes something that is no longer recognisable to us as food. It's often exactly that sort of mass-produced food that she works with. Yes, definitely, and that's, I think she... Very processed, you know. Very processed and, and yeah, like something that is can almost be grotesque in the way that you don't oh, think. Almost unrecognisable as food. That's it, that's it. Something that you go, oh, I could never eat that, surely. She talks about how in her work she she aims to kind of recontextualise food and I think make the viewer think about their relationship with what they eat and and working with that very kind of processed type of, of food is, is one way of doing that when food no longer becomes something recognisable to us. So can I ask you to describe as yeah, as much as you can, it's not easy obviously, but the collages that she's produced for the picture gallery here. Tell, just tell us a bit about where did where did the materials come from and just tell us a bit about what they look like, those collages. Really unique. And some of her previous collages, just to sort of put these ones in Griffith's view into a bit of context, the previous cookbook collages that I have seen Elizabeth make are very, very large scale. And they will so they'll take up, you know, a huge chunk of gallery wall and she will take vintage cookbooks and she will, you know, those vintage cookbooks that have those sort of double page spreads with those very saturated scenes of, say, a, a banquet, a table groaning with classic sort of 70s dishes, you know, your duck l'orange, etc. And she will cut up those images and she will assemble a huge collage. And there was there was one collage that she did from a few years ago that I remember, which was made from various different pictures of meat. So they're very complex I suppose and there's and you have to sort of to see them in person you have to kind of really step back to take them all in so in working with the very different format of the the print journal Griffith Review she wanted to try a, a different approach so the cookbooks that she used for this series of collages they're not they're not really cookbooks she describes them as um they, they catalogue this annual international culinary competition she says it's really like a food olympics so the, the dishes, are, again, they're almost not really recognisable as food, particularly in the way that she has arranged them. But lots of them seem to be terrines. They're very sort of delicate, very precise, very sort of beautifully patterned. And so she's cut these individual food elements out and she's arranged them in particular patterns. So some of them are, they look like little faces and others are just sort of, geometric patterns and the individual pieces are quite spaced apart so if you look closely you can see you can see you know oh this is a little line of terrine slices or um something that perhaps looks like a, a line of sushi rolls and she made these specifically for this edition she did yeah. yeah so these she's been she collects all sorts of cookbooks and culinary texts and she has been sort of playing around with various different types of collages for a long time and then when I approached her about doing a, a visual essay for this edition, um, she saw that as a, a great opportunity to put together this particular series from this um, particular series of books. Thank you so much for talking to me about this beautiful book. There's also, of course, some wonderful short fiction and poetry which we haven't talked about. 
but I invite listeners to go and grab a copy of this as part of your summer reading. It's a fantastic book and uh, it's uh, it's a, just such an interesting read. Carity, thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks so much for having me, Nicole. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberdy.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.